0: Welcome to Work in Progress with Christopher Michelson. This podcast is a work in progress about every working person's work in progress to understand the work we do, the purpose it serves, the effort we expend, and when all is said and done, what makes it meaningful. This podcast continues to be a work in progress, but one of the recurring themes has been exploring how works of art and literature illuminate lessons about our world, our work, and ethical leadership. In that respect, this episode of the podcast is like many others that we have done. And yet what we're trying to bring you in this episode is something entirely different. You know how when you're at a live performance, part of the beauty and tragedy of it at the same time is that you're experiencing something meaningful that will never happen again? A few months ago, I was part of an audience that experienced one of those nights. This podcast is our attempt to share it with you, because I wish you could have been there. The setting was a Friday evening at the Guthrie Theatre in downtown Minneapolis, a world-renowned repertory theatre. My colleague Nicole Zwick-Daly and I at the Melrose-Toro Center had been putting our heads together with our colleagues at the University of St. Thomas's Racial Justice Initiative, led by our colleague Yuhuru Williams, about how we could draw on theatre to contribute to racial justice in the workplace. With inspiration from our mutual friend Maya Garcia at the Guthrie and our university advancement team at St. Thomas, we planned a panel discussion to take place before a performance of Lorraine Hansberry's classic play, A Raisin in the Sun. We invited corporate sponsors to buy blocks of tickets to send employees and managers to this event to reflect on how much the racial injustice of our time resembles that of the 1930s, when the play is set, and what we can do as individuals and organizations to make positive change. Tina Burnside, who co-founded the Minnesota African American Heritage Museum and Gallery, moderated the conversation between Austin Van, the director of the play, and Yehuru Williams. We knew it would be a great pre-performance event, but what I didn't anticipate was that the panel discussion itself rose to the level of a poetic performance. They sat right on the stage in front of the set, on the edge of the living room of the younger family from A Raisin in the Sun. Everything Austin and Yuhuru said received as much applause as the play itself, which, not incidentally, got a standing ovation. It was an inspiring night. Nicole and I were kicking ourselves that we didn't record it, but there had been restrictions on setup since we were using the theater where the play would be performed. We thought about inviting Austin and Yahuru into the studio to re-record what they said, but they're busy people and also... There was something special about being there in the moment. Later that evening, I ran into our colleague Cherie Curry, who is a journalist. And like journalists do when they are in a historic moment, she informed me that she'd happened to turn on the recording app on her phone a few minutes into the panel discussion. She gave us permission to use the recording, and Tina, Austin and Yahuru gave us their permission as well. So, this is what you are about to hear. A few remarks from Austin and Yuhuru that are all too brief, interspersed with some interjections from me to provide some contextual information about the play in the evening. My intention is not to speak for them, but only literally and figuratively to amplify their words. I hope it leaves you wanting to learn more about the play, to make a difference in the world, and to listen to the rest of the conversation. And to that end, we've included the entire 20-minute panel conversation, complete with murmurs from the audience and static when the phone brushed against Cherie's clothing, as an appendix at the end of the podcast. So here we go.
1: This is a story of a family. They moved in 35 years before. They can't escape. That's the point.
0: A Raisin in the Sun is a 1959 play the most famous work of the playwright Lorraine Hansberry. Its title is drawn from the Langston Hughes poem, Harlem, which asks, What happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun? The Youngers are a black, multi-generational family living in a cramped, rented apartment because they've never been able to accumulate enough wealth for a place of their own. That's why Yuhuru says they can't escape the cycle. Listen on.
1: If you know anything about Lorraine Hansberry's background, her parents, her father Carl, actually sued uh, for them to move into a, a better home. And she was actually home when the mobs uh, had come to try to force them out of the home, and a brick is thrown through their window, and it nearly hits um, young middle school Lorraine Hansberry. So this play is coming from a very intimate place. But she's also living in a community at that point. They're living in the ghetto, and she talks about this. So her parents are, you know, college-educated, and yet they're trapped in the same circumstances as everyone else.
0: During the panel conversation, Tina asked Austin about the racial barriers that prevent people from passing wealth down through the generations.
2: I think it frustrates me when I hear, just pick yourself up by the bootstraps when you don't have boots, and your boots were taken away from you or you were beaten by those straps. I think about the youngers and how this insurance money came to them, and they have now, they have the means, but they can't get housing in a certain neighborhood they they want to because they've jacked up the crisis. It's It's not affordable for them. So they have to get a house someplace that's dangerous for them. So there's no winning. There's just no winning. And that continues to happen today. We know that with legacy and land and heritage, um, there is generational wealth. There's, there's wealth in land. So that is, that is, that's just out of reach for you to continue to pass on.
0: As Austin alluded to, the Youngers come into money because of a life insurance policy that was paid out with the death of their patriarch leading Uhuru to make a tragic connection between the younger's material fortune and our growing awareness today of racial injustice in the United States.
1: This is a play that's more that's about death. And so it speaks very powerfully to our contemporary moment if you choose to accept that message. If you walk away assuming that this is a hopeful message, and it is in some sense, that's fine. But the most important line comes toward the end of the play when obviously says to Benito, You know, all these opportunities that you're talking about here are born at the death of your father and the death of a child. And what happens, why is it that we always are dealing with circumstances or opportunities for this community, for African Americans that are born of death? That's damning in our contemporary moment. That our reckoning around race and the reason that we are able to convene in this space and watch this play, we're only moving to the quick about these issues regarding police brutality and housing. In education, is because we watched a man die by having somebody place their knee on their neck for nine minutes.
0: This was the context in which Tina asked Austin why she was directing a revival of the play in 2022.
3: Austin, why do you think it's important to feel how the play performed in
2: the um, It's It's important because, unfortunately, it is still relevant, right? Um, and I think that's important to see. I, I touched uh, a little bit on it when I said the style is different. The clothing is different. The house inside it looks different. How they speak is just a little different, right? But really, it's the same, and we should see that. We should see how far we haven't come and how much work we have to do. Um, like it or lump it, entertainment and art, And theater uh, is able to move people and touch people in certain ways. And so our hope with this play, that is still relevant um, and and being allowed to show a family that's that's real, a real family, um, people will be touched and moved into action because whatever happens to these people, these real people happens to you happens to our whole community.
0: I just want to call out Austin's words about the power of theater and the arts to inspire change, a point that Yuhuru echoes in this next passage, in which he once again reminds us that we don't just sit in theaters and read books and go to museums and watch movies for entertainment, but to make a difference, too.
1: If not for the video captured by Darnellis Frazier, the narrative about what happened May two years ago would have been the official record that was kept by the Minneapolis police. Until lions have historians, you know the rest of the proverb. Hunters will always be heroes. And so, in going forth looking for those stories to so, tell, again, Lorraine Ring brilliantly understood something. You can teach all the history in the world, but the, the beauty of the arts is to touch people's hearts.
0: At certain points in the conversation, Austin and YehuRu talked about what we can do to make change?
1: Uh,
2: there's so much to do, uh, uh, throw a dart at it. I think it does begin with discussion, asking great questions of yourself um, and anyone else uh, within Solter, uh, uh think about becoming not only a, a, an advocate and an ally, but an accomplice uh, to, to racial uh, uh, justice. Um, do some research. Uh, find out the why instead of just looking at the circumstances and deciding. Well, it must be this and it must be that. Find out the why's. Um, uh, 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 learn your, learn your history and be open to uh, people's uh, opinions, no matter how sharp they are. Um, and be also be open to to um, directing them towards some other information. It's the lack of, sometimes we don't want to know stuff, but really, truly, it is the lack of information um, that causes some fear and causes some prejudice um, in people. So,
0: Toward the end of the discussion, we had a little time for audience Q&A. The Q&A period is not part of this recording or the appendix because we couldn't obtain audience members' permission to record them. However, I want to highlight a question that one audience member, a young black man, posed to the panel. He said, quote, I can't help but be extremely anxious about the constant threat that I'm under every single day by just being me. That's not acknowledged. What are we supposed to do? End quote. Obviously, this play and panel discussion were only a start of what we are supposed to do here are a few things I hope you'll think about doing. One, I hope you'll be inspired by Lorraine Hansberry's play to learn more about the intersection between racial and economic injustice in America so we can put an end to that cycle. I hope you'll follow Austin's advice and seek reliable information, and then I hope you'll use that information to bring people together for the common good. I hope you'll be inspired to sponsor similar events, plays, book readings, film viewings, and so on, in your place of work to cultivate candid conversations among your colleagues about how to make change. And finally, I hope you'll be the challenger, but I'll defer to Yuhuru to have the last word, in which he explains what it means to be the challenger.
1: 1986, I was a freshman in high school and the Challenger was about to go up into space, and everybody remembers that moment because it was going to be the first teacher in space, Kristen McCollum. And everybody kind of fixates, fixates on that moment because of, of course, the tragedy that happens when the Challenger goes down. But I'd ask you later today to go home and Google an image of the Challenger crew. You have Ronald McNair, an African-American, who was on that crew. You have Alison Onizuka, the first Japanese-American astronaut, who was going up that day. You have Judith, Re- Judith Resnick, the fourth woman, the Jewish-American, go going up that day? You have three white guys, as people would characterize them. Two of them are kindergartens. And I want to tell you guys, when the challenger came down, Ronald Reagan has the unenviable task of explaining to the American people what happens. Most people, when you talk about the challenger, quote Reagan's beautiful language about the yeah, astronaut slipping the surly bonds of to touch the face of God. That's not what I want to talk to you about. I want to talk to you about the part of the speech where he says, We're not just Soviet Union. We don't run from the problems in our space program, we face them. That's the way democracy is. So permit me to say to everyone in this room, quoting Ronald Reagan, we don't run from our history, and not the Soviet Union, we have to face and cha- the challenges that are embedded in our history, because the moment we're trying to get back to is 1986. where we celebrated diversity because that's how can we committed to work for people to in his speech to Rice University in 1960, who is going to take the best of all of our abilities and all of our talents? Literally, John F. Kennedy says in that moment, "Space is dangerous and hostile to us all. It's going to take all of us to leverage those you know, expertise for its conquest." I'm not a big fan of talking about conquest, but I'm Andrew, a big fan of talking about what it means to be the challenge. and I want to share that with you in this sense, in the way that um, kind of talks about Muhammad Ali after he passed in 2016. That May did a political cartoon on Ali when he said Ali was the champ not because he was the greatest. Ali was the greatest not because he was the champ. Ali was the greatest because he was always the challenger. Be the challenger. Support black-owned businesses. Be the challenger. Be an advocate for diversity, equity, and inclusion in your workspace. Be the challenger. Recognize that Sunni Lee shouldn't have had to tell us that there's this wonderful community for long that we are being lived with, and we should know something about their history, and we should be celebrating that experience. Be the challenger, support the investigation, interrogation into reparations of how we repair the damage that we've done. Not 300 years ago, but literally just over a half century ago in Rondo and in this community. Be the challenger, because in that way, we can be hero.
0: Thank you for listening and for being the challenger. Now, as promised, here is the appendix: the full, uninterrupted recording of the panel discussion.
3: Why do you think it's important to um, still have to play, perform, and
2: produce? Um, it's it's important because, unfortunately, it's still relevant, right? Um, and I think that's important to see. I, I touched uh, a little bit on it when I said the style is just different. The clothing is different. The house inside of it looks different. How they speak is just a little different, right? But really, it's the same, and we should see that. We should see how far we haven't come and how much work we have to do. Um, like it or lump it entertainment and art and theater uh, is able to move people and touch people in certain ways. And so our hope with this play that is still relevant um, and and being allowed to show a family that's a that's a real a real family. Um, people will be touched and moved into action because whatever happens to these people, these real people, Happens to you. Happens to our whole community, and so um, that that was our hope, and that's one of the reasons why we created this. Uh, Regina Garcia is the set designer, but we wanted to make sure that the set uh, reached out to touch people, um, so that you understood that this sidewalk still a little cracked, and that should feel a little uncomfortable, and that this. This house is carved out, cut up, so that the landlord could make more money, but that it's stuck, it's too tight, and you have to get out. It's important to know that they have to get out. Um, sometimes when you see this play, you see kind of a sprawling, more of a sprawling set, and a set that just doesn't look that uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable on purpose. Um, So um, our mission was to bring this bring bring this beautiful masterpiece um to 2022 show that there really aren't that many differences um but also make sure that we do our best um not to just make you feel something and then you go home and forget it but to make sure that you are uh touched and learn something so that you can do something and so we can continue to make progress even if it's little by little.
1: I would just add, you know, very briefly, because I don't how you to add to that. I mean, it's brilliant. Um, this is the story of a family. They moved in 35 years before. They can't escape. That's the point. Because they've been there 35 years in this, this cramped... Any of you who've uh, been in a, you know, starter home know exactly what I'm talking about here. That first apartment you had just out of university. Imagine being stuck in that and raising a family in that, and then years later finding yourself still stuck in that space. I want to emphasize something else to you. This is a play that's important. It's about death. And so it speaks very powerfully to our contemporary moment if you choose to accept that message. If you walk away assuming that this is a hopeful message, and it is in some sense, that's fine. But the most important line comes toward the end of the play when obviously says to Benita, you know, all these opportunities that you're talking about here are born at the death of your father and the death of a child. And what happens, why is it that we always are dealing with circumstances or opportunities for this community, for African Americans that are born of death? That's damning in our contemporary moment, that our reckoning around race and the reason that we are able to convene in this space and watch this play and we're only moved to the quick about these issues regarding police brutality and housing and education is because we watched a man die by having somebody place their knee on their neck for nine minutes. That speaks to us across time, and it's also a brutal reminder, in some sense, of the obligation that Austin spoke to that we have not to walk out and assume that we just saw a play. I'll put it to you this way, because I think Lorraine Hansberry brilliantly captures this in each and every one of those characters. And it's this idea that, and I think Jerry Blackwell probably articulated it best in the summation to the show of a trial. Um, He celebrated the people that spoke out that day as a bouquet of humanity. Those people who saw what was happening and rather than turning a blind eye to the injustice that they were witnessing, spoke out it in their own limited ways, whatever spiritual gifts or talents they had, use those in that moment to plead for that man's life. Don't walk out of here today after having seen this play and not be moved to be the vocab. heaven.
3: Uh, I wanted to follow up on something that you said about how um, the only reason that they were able to to move out of that place that they had been for 35 years was because there was a death in the family and so they got insurance benefits. But can you both speak about um, generational wealth in this country and how black people don't have that same opportunity to build generational wealth because of racism? And so um, a lot of people may look at it and say, oh, why haven't black people achieved? Or why why can't they do this? Why can't they do that? Like other communities. But I think people don't really understand that thing about generational
2: wealth. Yes, I have a whole soapbox about this. Um, uh, I think it frustrates me when I hear, just pick yourself up by the bootstraps when you don't have boots and your boots were taken away from you, you were were beaten by those straps. So it's always fascinating to me. I was watching the show, with something like American Pickers. It was just on, but in uh, this, this man who was, who had a whole lot of stuff that he needed to pawn in this huge, huge house that had been in his family since 1700 and something. And I thought, we don't really have that story because land um, and how house homes um, no matter how much money you have are just out of your reach. I think about the youngers and how this insurance money came to them and they have now they have the means, but they can't get housing in a certain neighborhood if they want to because, they jacked up the prices. It's un, it's not affordable for them. So they have to get a house someplace that's dangerous for them. So there's no winning. There's just no winning. And that continues to happen today. You know that with legacy and land and heritage, um, there is generational wealth. There's, there's wealth in land. So that is, that is. That's just out of reach for you to continue to pass on to your family, to, to make sure that there's college funds and and that you can build more houses and have more land. Um and that is of course a campaign to make sure that you belong nowhere and you have no thing. And my question is always, well, where do you think I should go? Where should I go? I'm here. And you would think that, in in in, in the back of my brain movies. you would think that. You would be encouraged and feel like we have a strong America when everyone has something. When everyone is able to contribute. When everyone is proud of where they live and proud of the land that they stand on and take care of it. Yes, um, and they're healthy and happy. Um, but that's not where we are right now, but we're working on
1: it. I, I would agree. I think um, we talk about generational wealth in particular. That's the core of the story that we consider. If you know anything think about Lorraine Hansberry's background, her parents, her father, Carl, actually sued uh, for them to move into a, a better home. And she was actually home when the mobs uh, had come to try to force them out of the home and a brick is thrown through their window and it nearly hits um, young middle school, Lorraine Hansberry. So this play is coming from a very intimate place. But she's also living in a community at that point. They're living in the ghetto, and she talks about this. So her parents are, you know, college educated, um, and yet they're trapped in the same circumstances as everyone else, and so there's a little bit of, of uh, uh, socioeconomic tension that she talks about that is pervasive in her other works that you could just a hint of here, just a little of, in this play. But where I want to go with the generational wealth point is consider the story of Rhonda. I mean, we live in a community where you have probably a textbook example of how a denial of access to generational wealth is damaging to people over the long term. My grandmother had three insurance policies um, because that's how she planned for the future. I tell people that, and the reality is that she didn't own her home. uh, She didn't own an automobile. And so she just waited for her husband to die. That's an uncomfortable thing to talk about, and yet that's how my family was able to purchase their first home. In Bridgeport, Connecticut, not in the deep south. You know, this is not a southern story, this is an American story. And uh, my grandmother, Omi Jefferson, is a great example of what Lorraine Hansberry captures really in this play. In Rondo, the story is different. We do have African-American homeowners. you We do have African-American business owners. But when the decision is made, to obliterate a community in order to run a highway for efficiency through that neighborhood, they choose the black neighborhood. It was deliberately done, and those people are depriving their homes, depriving their businesses, uh, and basically left to fend for themselves. And the argument is, well, we couldn't do anything about that, even though we know that those decisions were um, literally, literally determined by who lived in those communities. We love to tell the story of Rondo. We uh, don't tell the story about Minneapolis, which also experienced something very similar. In terms of the African American community. And oh, by the way, it happened in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, it happened in Wilmington, Delaware, it happened all over this country. It even happened in Tulsa, Oklahoma. When people talk about the Tulsa race riot in 1921, that was round one. Round two came 40 years later when they ran the interstate through what the remnant of that of prosperous Greenwood community was. Now, as a historian, I'm used to talking about these things that are very fluid and having conversations about them. But for the general public, I think it's important to recognize, as Steve talked about, and this plays a window into it, you're looking at deliberate policies, practices, and procedures that have deprived a large portion of this uh, country, large segment of our society, of an opportunity to achieve the American ruin. That's something we can reverse. That's not something that exists in a space that's beyond us. We just have to have the intestinal fortitude and will to be in it. Doctor, I just... I... Okay.
2: I just learned, and maybe you can speak a little bit about this. I just learned about a year and a half ago about 100, uh, black neighborhoods that are now underwater. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? This, this just blew my mind, and I couldn't believe the, um, the, the deliberate uh, erasure of cultures. Um, but I guess there were at least 100, maybe, is that correct?
1: The, the numbers fluctuate, and you know the, the sad thing is it depends on you know, historians have to go and do that work. Like you know that's the other part of this. I'm on the reparations committee for the city of St. Paul, and one of the questions we get from people all the time is, what if I don't know um, what my family's family's legacy is? Because the other part of this is that the records themselves, kept. you think about it in this way. Um, again, it's the brilliance of Lorraine Hansberry and home in which she grew up. And we don't often think about her as an activist, but she's a, you know, she studies African-American history with W.E.B. Du Bois, not at the university, but as a reporter for um, what would have been considered a subversive newspaper in New York, where she's working with Paul Robeson. She's running in circles where, in in a real tangible way, she's a precursor to the black power movement in this country. We just don't talk about her in that sense. And in terms of that, in terms of talking about those underwater, uh, the communities that are underwater, that was all about erasure, literally erasure. By that I mean, I remember people saying, in, in fact, I'll give you a very concrete example of this. If not for the video captured by Ellis Regan, the narrative about what happened May two years ago would have been the official record that was kept by the Minneapolis police. Until lions have historians, you know the rest of the program. Hunters will always be heroes." And so, in going forth looking for those stories to tell, again, Lorraine Gansbury brilliantly understood something. You can teach all the history in the world, but the the beauty of the arts is to touch people's hearts. And the reality is, if our hearts aren't touched by what we see, if we can't see in ourselves the young ones, then it's going to be very hard for us to not have the reaction. But I've seen talk about that. Well, that only happens to those people because they don't work hard, or they haven't invested enough, or they they don't have the same capacity. When in fact. It's our inhumanity, our inability to recognize our shared humanity, that often is the, the biggest obstacle to overcome.
3: So, what's... <laughs> so what suggestions do you both have for audience members here um, to continue this conversation of, about race and discrimination, and what actions can they take to bring about change in their daily lives, their communities, or their
2: workplaces? There's so much to do, uh, uh, throw a dart at it. I think it does begin with discussion, asking great questions of yourself. Um, and anyone else, uh, within culture, uh, uh, think about becoming not only, uh, an advocate and an ally, but an accomplice, uh, to, to racial, uh, uh, justice. Um, do some research, uh, find out the why. Instead of just looking at the circumstances and deciding, well, it must be this and it must be that. Find out the why. Um, uh, 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 learn your, learn your history and be open to, uh, people's, uh, opinions, no matter how sharp they are. Um, and be, also be open to, to, um, Directing them towards some other information. It's the lack of, sometimes we don't want to know stuff, but really, truly, it is the lack of information, um, that causes fear and causes some prejudice, um, in people. So, uh, but knowledge is such freedom, such beauty, and it opens you up to things. It doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel delicious all the time. Um, but it is. A wonderful thing, and it's a wonderful thing to share. And knowledge, it's at our fingertips, right there. And so we don't have to go look for all of the books, right? Um, We can look it up on them. And, and if you have questions about what you see on the Internet, you can do your research. But just start pulling at those threads. Just start pulling. Watch everything kind of unravel. I think that's what it is. But also, you can put your money and your time um, just what? Uh, volunteering uh, towards um, uh, uh, any organization uh, that help with racial justice um, and um, discrimination.
1: Walter Lee Younger, again, this is the brilliance of Lorraine Hansberry, is the barista that helped you this, the Latina barista that helped you this morning. Whose story you don't know. I'm going to drop you off is from Somalia or is some other place that is to us that we never get to know, even though they're an integral part of our communities. Lorraine Hansbury dropped us in the middle of that person's house. And I just gonna, this is the other that you fear. who's just like you. And overcoming that fear and helping to develop a healthy sense of who the people we share this planet with are. Actually makes us all safer and puts us in a better position to achieve the ideals that we associate with the American dream. Let me put this to you in a slightly different context, and I'll try to do this quickly, but I'd be remiss if I didn't in some sense talk about the placement theory of what we just saw happen last week, Boston. So let me explain this to you in this way, the way that I've been sharing with people the way I think about Boston, and it ties to Austin's point about running from our history. 1986, I was a freshman in high school in a challenger was about to go up into space, and everybody remembers that moment because it's gonna be the first teacher in space, Kristen McCollum. And everybody kind of fixates, fixates on that moment because of, of course, the tragedy that happens when the Challenger goes down. But I'd ask you later today to go home and Google an image of the Challenger crew. You have Ronald McNair, an African-American, uh, who was on that crew. You have Ellison Onizuka, the first Japanese-American astronaut, who was going up that day. You have Judith, Re- Judith Resnick, the fourth woman, the Jewish-American, who was going up that day. He three white guys, as people would characterize him. Two of them are immigrants. And I want to tell you that when the challenger came down, Ronald Reagan has the individual task of explaining to the American people what happened. Most people, when they talk about the challenger, quote Reagan's beautiful language about the astronauts slipping the surly bar of her, such of God. That's not what I want to talk to you about. I want to talk to you about the part of the speech where he says, we're not facilitating. Soviet Union. We don't run from the problems in our space program, we face, them. that's the way democracy is. So permit me to say to everyone in this room, quoting Ronald Reagan. We don't run from our history, we're not at the Soviet Union, we have to face and cha- the challenges that are embedded in our history because the moment we're trying to get back to is 1986, where we celebrated diversity because NASA, uh, John Kennedy committed the American people to, in his to speech to write University in 1960, we're gonna take the best of all of our abilities and all of our talents. Literally, John F. Kennedy says in that moment, space is dangerous or hostile to us all. It's gonna take all of us to uh, leverage those uh, expertise for its conquest. I'm not a big fan of talking about conquest, but I'm a big fan of talking about what it means to be the challenger. And I want to share that with you in this sense, in the way that um, Pat Bagley talked about Muhammad Ali after he passed in 2016. Pat did the political cartoon on Ali, said Ali was the champ not because he was the greatest. Or Ali was the greatest not because he was the champ. Ali was the greatest because he was always the challenger. Be the challenger. Support black-owned businesses. Be the challenger, be an advocate for diversity, equity, and inclusion in your workspace. Be the challenger, recognize that SUNY Lee should have had to tell us that there is this wonderful community from Vermont that we are being lived with, and we should know something about their history, and we should be celebrating that experience. Be the challenger, support the investigation, interrogation into reparations of how we repair the damage and done. not 300 years ago, but literally just over a half century ago in Rondell and in this community. Be we need to challenge them, because
3: in that way, we can be a
0: Work in Progress with Christopher Michelson is made possible by the Melrose and the Toro Company Center for Principal Leadership at the University of St. Thomas. It is produced by Nicole swig and engineered by Tom Forlitti, with music by The Sunny Era. I'm Christopher Michelson. Thanks for listening.